Hey guys, on this episode, we're going to be discussing Drive from 2011. We do recommend watching the movie beforehand. It will probably make the conversation a little more interesting to listen to. So, John, what is Drive about? Well, Mike, Drive tells the most eternal, powerful story there is to tell, that of true love. Ryan Gosling follows up his generational 2004 drama The Notebook with a movie bathed in the somber, moving portrait of love and loss. Watch Gosling's unnamed driver vie for the love of Carrie Mulligan and her young son. Watch him wrestle with conflict at meeting her down-on-his-luck husband, played by Oscar Isaac. Though the story twists and turns, Drive never loses sight of that violently burning flame at its center, the love between Gosling and Mulligan. Don't miss out on one of the decade's most impactful and emotionally moving dramas. Mm. So it's like a sequel to The Notebook or what? Is that what it's the, a sequel to The is Notebook? The take? Is, 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 I think, sort of the take. Yeah. Is that is that track with your... Is that... Are we... Real human being. Yep. There we go. There we go. Welcome. real hero. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Woo! See, now I don't know, do I do the song after the credits? way too seriously i'm jonathan devine joined as always by mike overstreet the driver yep yep okay there we go that's you do you want me to call you the driver now yes the whole podcast i won't okay cool cool <laughs> won't do it i refuse it's not in my contract like we said on this episode we're discussing the 2011 film drive this is a movie based on a novel i don't know if you knew that mike based on a I novel by james salas uh, it's directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. The screenplay is adapted by Hossein Amini. The cinematography is by Newton Thomas Siegel. It's edited by Matthew Newman. And the music is by Cliff Martinez and Johnny Jewell. Mike, what I wrote down in terms of like trying to introduce this movie, uh, and I sent this to you a little while ago. This is basically a Clint Eastwood Western crossed with gritty film noir set in Tarantino, Los Angeles. Mm, That's my take. Love it. I think that that encapsulates everything that you you check into this movie for. I guess I should throw in something about the neon 80s aesthetic. But overall, that setting, I think, is basically what's going on in this movie. Um, I actually do have one other thing in in terms of introducing the movie. Uh, Sometimes I quote from Wikipedia, and I just think this was a great sentence that I found. Okay. The film was praised for its direction, cinematography, performances, visuals, action sequences, and musical score. However, some critics were appalled by its graphic violence <laughs> and, found, and found that potentially detrimental to the film's box office success. It's just so great because Wikipedia is so dry normally. Yeah, so the sentence, yeah. some critics were appalled by its graphic violence. I just found, I, it tickled me, Mike. It, I just appreciated that. <laughs> Straightforward and um, accurate. Mike, what is your history with this movie is usually where we start. Yeah. Just talking about our personal experiences, uh, first time we saw it and things like that. I wrote in all caps, 
this movie is a banger, an absolute banger. And uh, it's true. It's just that was my experience with it. I saw it in college, and I went. I think it was playing in the student cinema. I might have gone to the theaters, but it was just like <laughs> I don't know, man. I was just obsessed. Um, it is like Did the, it? the sweet spot of style, grit, like great acting, action, especially for like a college newly minted film buff, you know, starting to take seriously the act of studying things like cinematography and lighting. Uh, this movie mm-hmm. is the definition of a banger for someone in that season of life. And that's where I was. This, It really did come out at a perfect moment for you and me. I was yeah. a sophomore. This is 2011. I think you would have been a junior, right? Yeah. Um, and you're right. Like I saw it. I, I distinctly remember seeing it at the student theater. Uh, what I remember, I was curious to ask you, did you know anything going into the oh, movie? Oh, absolutely did you have any, not. Yeah. Because I had nothing. I had nothing at all. I, I think I literally went because at the time, like I just went to the student theater a lot. And that was obviously a really cool part of the college experience for me but what i distinctly remember is the poster just looks so cool yeah uh just that that 80s lettering gosling sitting there looking intense Um, well i i i distinctly remember like i had seen lars and the real girl and i was like oh this is such an interesting um change for ryan gosling because it was like post notebook and i had seen half nelson so i knew he was a good actor but in both of those films, he's still playing a largely likable character. And I had not mm-hmm. seen Blue Valentine yet. So this was like... Right, right. I was like, oh, everyone says this is kind of a dark movie, but it's like Ryan Gosling, so how dark can it be? And I was intrigued. <laughs> I had not seen Refn's uh, Valhalla yet, or whatever, Valhalla Rising. I can't remember what that his yeah, um, yeah. Viking movie is called. So I was like completely blindsided by like, oh, hey, uh, Ryan, the guy from The Notebook is stomping a guy's face into the ground. Oh, Jesus it's Christ. Pretty, <laughs> like, well, in the first one is is when, when spoilers, even though we may or may not have said that already, but spoilers, yeah. when Blanche gets gets brutally murdered, yes. shot through oh, the window. God. I think that's, and that's the one, I, I think everyone, you're always going to be surprised because the movie here up to that point is so chill, but that moment, I, the theater, like, vis- viscerally re- reacted. 100%. Like, people were like, because I think it was like a full theater back when we had full theaters, but it was, you know, people, there was such a, oh my God, what, what kind of movie are we watching? 100%. That visceral effect is so cool, though. Like, that's yeah. what I think about when people talk about seeing Jaws in 75, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is the whole theater was, yeah, it was, just, it was wild. It was, it was bonkers. Uh, quick, uh, not quite correction but quick quick you know difference of opinion you said that you were you know you, you knew gosling was good from from this movie or that movie i mean mike he already had his star turning performance in remember the titans oh that yeah. was when i was like man when he right, gives gosling, off that, that when guy. he gives up his spot for pd yeah well yeah you give it that to changed him. everything you give it to him <laughs> That was a more, I would put it to you, that was a more emotional performance than he's given in any movie since. <laughs> I, I think over, he really Move peaked. over Blade Runner 2049. Move over Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> uh, but real quick, just to finish up the history, I saw this movie in college, loved it. But, and, and I think you might have a similar experience on this, I, I distinctly did not rewatch it. it yeah. And I'm not exactly sure why. I think, I, I kind of think that the... You know, I remember that it was a little slow. I remember that it was ultra violent. Yeah, John, I think, that I, might I put think me you, off. Were, you were probably appalled. 
actually. I was, <laughs> I was appalled, in fact, by its graphic violence. But, you know, it's funny. I, I definitely, I just never went back to it. Um, this was my first, I think my first ever rewatch. And it really shot up the ranks. It, yeah. were, it, it was absolutely a movie that I did not remember being quite so effective. Yeah. And I think I appreciated it much more the second time because the first time you're so caught up in the emotional um, journey and all of the surprises, you know, like we've already obviously mentioned the violence and things that all caught me so off guard that that was my my core memories the first time watching it. So the second time on the rewatch, I got to pay attention and be like, oh, wow, this is doing really interesting things. This is a really, really well put together movie in it with a lot of interesting themes and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I, I just picked up on a lot more. Uh, I don't know if that. Have no. you, did you rewatch it a lot or? Um, I've, so I've seen it more than I've seen it since it came out, but I do not rewatch it a lot um, yeah. by any stretch. I think it's an interesting movie to comp with um, Neil Blomkamp which is the guy who directed District 9. So it's one of those movies where, because I have since gone back and watched a lot of reference other stuff and been largely unimpressed by him as a director, I often forget how good his, like, big movie was, right? Like, I do that with District 9 all the time. I go back and watch District 9, and I'm like, oh, I forgot that this movie's amazing. This movie's innovative. This movie's so thought-provoking. That's how I kind of feel with Drive, where I often don't go back to it because I'm like, eh, reference kind of a... Uh, most of his movies don't sit well with me at all. I actually just don't like them. And it leads me to forget that Drive actually is a truly, truly, truly great movie. Yeah. This is actually where I have to uh, cop to the fact that I have not seen, I, I believe, any other Nicholas Winding Refn uh, movies because I'm a fake film fan. But um, no, is that the that, that, that's your broad take no, overall? You're, is, is... you're fine. <laughs> Skip it. <laughs> just <laughs> You're good. Literally... It is funny how the only two since then, um, at least one of them, I conv- I think I confused with Drive at one point. So only God forgives and the Neon Demon. Yeah, I'm pretty I, sure. I I truly dislike both movies as much as I could dislike a movie. Like <laughs> that's all I'll say. Strong takes. Yeah. So good recommendations there. Great times. Okay, well, uh, Mike, did you have anything else on the history of the movie, or do you want to just jump into it? No, I think that's a good transition to what worked. Cool. So we divide this podcast into a couple different sections. We start by talking about uh, why this movie works, what um, what it does well. Then we go into maybe some things that hold it back, some things that don't work so well. We'll have some stray thoughts later, and then way later in the podcast, we each have some essays we've prepared. Uh, but let's start. What makes this movie work? Um, I just have so many things I so want to talk about. Let's just start. We essentially always start here, but that's okay. Um, we've done three movies this season so far, and we keep saying with every movie, last week we said this movie looked really good, mm. but this week we have to say, this movie looks really unbelievable. Good. <laughs> yes. And man, this movie looks really good. This is such a good looking movie. What, you know, it's, it's, so obviously this is, as I said earlier, you know, it's this kind of noir, it's a neo-noir movie, essentially, if you had to give it just one title or one kind of genre name and it really leans into that i think in a really exciting way because it's it's merging the noir aesthetic with like mm. 80s kind of synth wave yeah and basically just as a perfect marriage is the kind of thing that you think why did no one think of this before yeah um it's all those because it, it combines kind of this inky blackness there's shadows everywhere 
uh, with like this neon sort of coloring that comes up all the time. It has these gorgeous shots of it's 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 one of those movies that makes L.A. look good, which is difficult. But if a movie does, it, it immediately makes it amazing, right? Any movie like Collateral is kind of like yeah, yeah. Where yeah. I, I was like, man, L.A. looks kind of cool in this movie. I, suddenly, I want to go, and then you go, and you're like, wow, yeah. that sucks. Uh, I'm dirty. <laughs> what, what a trash city, but. But yeah, just it looks so good in this movie. I don't know. It, it's it captures that all of that weirdness so well, and it, it all those things get married together so well. Yeah, no, I think I I couldn't have said it better. I mean, any scene where he's driving around L.A., whether it's the the sweeping cityscapes or the quarry, which I don't think that place exists. There is no actual fresh water in L.A. Um, but those are all gorgeous. Like they're just gorgeous. I have no evidence to, to, yeah, to contradict yeah. you. So that must be true. Yeah. No, they're, they're just gorgeous scenes. Um, one of the, I, I did to everything you said. I think one of the things that I caught this time around is that Refin has this like really good knack for setting up tableaus. And what I mean by that mm. is like these wide still shots, um, where his light is really in play and it's just like two characters in a scene, either looking at each other or even like the the front facing shot, like while um, Carrie Mulligan is watching uh, Ryan Gosling's character carry her son, and it's just like this really beautiful orange lit kind of like faded, I don't know, like fairy tale esque almost at times. Uh, yeah, beautiful shot, and he does that multiple times. These like tableaus, which are then really, and we're gonna talk about contrast a lot in this movie, are then contrasted yeah. really strongly with that neon, very much popping kind of light. Um, bright coloring so it's a film that just constantly either for faded reasons or loud reasons catches your eye with a ton of different yeah. diversity of shots and uh coloring so yeah i love it i mean i, I think it's one of the i totally the agree with trends. all of that i i just want to jump off real quick you said contrast it's worth noting too the movie does a great job of varying up its visual style yeah over the course of the movie. Maybe not style is the best word, but visual mixing up its, its visual setting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of what I'm even getting at the tableaus where you have these beautiful slow or still sometimes tableau shots mixed with a movie that has some of the most bonkers car chases, like car chase scenes, frantic car chase scenes in terms of direction that you'll see in a movie. And that's like a very jarring visual choice to shake you between those two extremes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally Sorry, agree. Not to cut you off. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. That was exactly what I was saying. I'm yeah. actually going to jump off the entire point, unless you had anything else no, for just it. the visuals. Um, in terms of also talking about kind of the style of this movie, I mean, the soundtrack, right? The synthwave uh, soundtrack. I was... When I say, I didn't when have to I go say check. this movie yeah. is a banger, I mean the soundtrack in this movie you is a banger. You just be the sound. You don't yes. even... You don't have to watch the movie at all. Just go check out the soundtrack. Come on. And it's, this did confirm... I was happy to go back and read some contemporary material from the time and confirm that this did kind of start the entire 80s synthwave kind of thing. The revival. For everyone. Because it definitely did for me. This is the This was when I was like, oh man, that's so cool. Yeah. Like that kind of retro wave kind of thing. Um, were you really like did for pretty much everyone? Were you really in college in the 2010s if you didn't drive around your college town <laughs> listening to real human beings? Everyone like, did that. Tell me, tell everyone me, did tell that me it's not true. Moment. 
That is that is gotta be one of the most shared experiences among people in our you in our like very specific socioeconomic background. Threw on threw on my scorpion yeah. jacket and just drove around at night listening to synth. Oh my god. Just that's it. That's it. Summer nights, th- drive around the city, blasted synth wave. Come like, on. Nowhere man. to go. That's it. Those were times. Those were days. It's this a perfect. Is, it's a perfect soundtrack. It really is. I really did jam to this soundtrack yeah. for years. I think. And, yeah. and well, yeah, and kind of like in that vein of that soundtrack just being something that like caught the attention. I think of people for mm-hmm. years. Honestly, is that it, it's just yeah. It's just cool. And generally, like that's the next thing I would bring up about this movie is just style, style, style. This movie is just freaking cool. It's a cool movie, yeah. right? And it has a very cool. It's very much a vibes movie. In a lot of ways, um, you know, the entire intro, oh, like voiceover with this whole "you've got five minutes," and then the shot of the scorpion jacket, and it has just like this building score and the cop chase and the helicopter spotlights and this sweet like getaway scene, and then he like parks the car and puts on his like hat and like walks out of the Clippers game. It's just like it's just cool, and then that sets up the rest it's of the amazing. film, which is just a really cool film. So I keep saying the same word over and over again. But that's all I got. So style is kind of one of the things that always comes to my mind when I think about this movie. Almost more synonymous with this movie than almost any other one I can think of. It's just a cool yeah. movie, right? I, I totally agree. I think that, um, yeah, I, I just totally agree. I think the style is amazing. I'm actually going to pivot off of that because what I was going to say was, you know, a huge reason why. And I was like, oh, well, we can just talk about this then because a huge reason why a lot of that coolness is being sold. You think about in that intro scene, after that speech, when the driver goes to pick up the car and Brian Cranston playing Shepard talks the entire time and driver does literally doesn't say anything <laughs> as he's walks through all these cars and then finally gets to the camp. What was it? I think a Camry or something like that. And then he throws him the keys and he gets in and he drives away. That moment is being sold because of Ryan Gosling, yeah. right? Because of the actor's presence and and vibe and like like if you put like if I just went to shoot that, it would just be like, why is that guy just walking and not saying anything? Yeah. You wouldn't think what a cool what a cool moment. You would think, wow, this dude's kind of weird. That's so such an integral part, and so I, and so what I'm trying to do is get us to just talk about the cast in general, though, because yeah. you know, and this is this is the part that I had the most, like the longest notes about, because sure. I think once in a lifetime, you kind of get this indie film in which you get this weird mix of great character actors who are known but don't have such an exorbitant kind of price tag to not end up in these movies. And you get those people mixed with people that are about to become huge. And this movie is yeah. like that for our generation. Like Ryan Gosling's about to blow up. Oscar Isaac is in this movie for no freaking reason. Carrie Mulligan's yeah. in this movie. She's about to blow up. You have, um, sorry, what's his name? Uh, Brian Cranston at like the middle of Breaking Bad, right before the final yeah. season where Breaking Bad really actually went on to streaming and exploded all over the national consciousness. And then you just have like Albert Brooks and you know people like that who are just not expensive but are great character actors. Anyways, we're going to talk yeah. about each of them in kind, but I think the uniqueness of this movie is that it caught all of those people right before they would become way too famous to all be in this movie or at least way too yeah. expensive, right? 
And it, it's phenomenal. The cast is amazing. That's especially true for Brian Cranston because yeah. I think, like, you're right. Like, one and a half years later, he is best living actor, TM. Yeah. And it's like, you know, no, they're never going to buy him for that. But here, he's just he's just kind of slumming it. He's well, just in for a few scenes, in and out. And Does Oscar a great Isaac. Job. It, did you remember he was in this movie, Oscar Isaac? I did not at all. Yeah. What? Like- and, <laughs> and I also didn't remember. This is going to be a straight thought, but I'm just going to say it now. A uh, tough break for Oscar Isaac as a dad, huh? Oh yeah. Like between dude and this, it's just not good. Well, it's just, and uh, between my um, boy inside the wall, Lewin Davis. Anyway. Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> he doesn't even know. We love this guy. Doesn't even know his keep, kid in that movie. <laughs> keep doing these movies where he's such a trash dad. Oh no. Yeah. Well, not uh, him and him and Carrie Mulligan reuniting from the last love story that they did together inside yeah. the world, Davis. Woo. Why did I not do that as my joke intro? <laughs> That was right there. They're both they're in both of those movies. And they're both leading back together. successful relationships at both, yeah. You say back together. Wasn't this movie first? Yeah, but I mean, in the timeline of when okay. they take place, I mean, I don't know. In the timeline of this podcast, which is what matters. Yeah. That's sure. what that's what cultural history will be judged by. And I assume um, they share a universe, so they're probably the same people. Sure, sure. That, that totally makes sense. Uh... Let's talk about Ryan Gosling. Yeah, let's go through. I'm not sure these if people. we'll have that much to say besides uh, he's amazing. I have loads to say. He's what I wrote is he's so hot. I, right I think now. there might only be, I think there might only be a handful of actors who can carry a role like this, which has so little dialogue. Yeah, which requires so much of just standing there doing nothing and yet conveying some kind of emotion yeah which on the one hand is so like overly simple like i i I do remember the first time i saw the movie there's a moment where i thought like like what's going like i couldn't figure out the driver character because at one point i was like is he like kind of incredibly dumb maybe because yeah sure he just seems so like blankly happy with this like forrest gump what's going on yeah, almost, but yeah. I don't think so. I, I think that it's, no, there is like so. it's just the, <laughs> it's just sort of the the way that he is having to sell all of these different things of like almost naivety, but also brutal at the drop of a hat. Right? Yeah, and it's such a weird role. Um, bit of bit of external research I have. Gosling took the role specifically because he was he wanted to try an action movie. Mm. He felt like he had been doing too many like dramas and stuff yeah. and things. And he said this was the first action movie that actually seemed intriguing to him and interesting. I did find that I did mark that as a little bit humorous just because I thought he picked an action movie with frankly very little actual action. Sure. Like yeah. the action in this movie is amazing, but mostly like he just picked the absolute slowest yeah. most drama yeah action movie most dramatic action movie i can imagine but i'm like yes it is technically an action movie um so weird pull by him but i don't disagree i mean i think it's an amazing amazing choice to do uh and he kills it so yeah i don't know if if you you had anything else on him no yeah I, i think he's he's the centerpiece of this movie um you know on one hand you can take it like you were just talking about from outside the film and it is like an unbelievable choice in terms of trashing one's own public stereotype. Um, he just does a really good job of like divorcing himself from kind of the box he was being put in really since yeah. the notebook and blue Valentine started to do that a little bit, but this movie like obviously throws it out the window where it's not even a drama. Like you said, it is just like guttural violence. Um, but what really 
kind of blows me away every time I see this movie is he is truly asked, and you were just hinting at this, he's truly asked to do more in this movie than probably anyone should be. Like, he has to be the yeah. coolest person in the movie. He has to be the most intensely deliberative person in the movie, kind of like you were saying, the physical acting where he's pausing before he speaks. The, you get this, like, glint in his eye where he's very thoughtful, obviously. Like, there's an internal world there that you have to pick up without him saying anything. And then he also has to be the most dangerous and violent person in this movie. And I think that last part might be the most impressive because it's this way that shocks you. But then when you go back and rewatch the movie, you realize it's there like the whole time in hindsight. Yeah. Where there is this bubbling beneath the surface where it's like this guy is a dangerous animal. And when that flip switches, like I love the diner scene. Man, when that diner scene where he is like, when his control is threatened and he switches into like, I will kill you mode. You're just like, yeah. oh, that's Oof. been inside this guy the entire time. I mean, it, and then you see it multiple times, you know, when he puts his gloves on before beating uh, the woman, basically after the Isaac robbery, you just get these moments that he's like, he is a, a loosely, not loosely. I actually think the whole point of his character is very well controlled animal inside of a cage. But man, when that cage opens, it's like, all of that deliberateness and all of that quietness and all of that coolness is going to go boop right out the window because ultimately yeah. this guy is a spring tightened all the way. And when it gets released, it is just like menace exploding in violence. All to say that he is asked to do the most of all of those things all in one performance without saying much. And he does it almost perfectly. Actually, I wouldn't say almost. He does it perfectly. It's this internalized yeah. performance that somehow achieves each of those goals, which I think to ask one person to do all of them, is kind of insane when you actually think about it. Totally agree. I think, uh, yeah, I don't have anything to add. I'm, I'm, I'm there for all of that. Um, let's talk about Albert Brooks. Yeah. What do you, why, why don't you take the, why don't you take the lead on this, on, on your boy? Man, yeah. I, I, I've just now decided. Uh, he is. Uh, I think I texted you during the week that. Whenever I rewatch this movie, it kind of reminds me of Inglorious Bastards, where when I first mm -hmm. saw Inglorious Bastards, I was like, well, obviously, oh, God, I'm forget his name. Uh, Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Christoph yeah. Waltz. Yeah. That when I first saw Inglorious Bastards, I was like, well, obviously, Christoph Waltz is the best part of this movie. He's the best performance. And then the more I rewatch Inglorious Bastards, I more and more am like Brad Pitt does just as good of a job in this movie. And he's also just equally amazing. And I think that's yeah. how I feel about this. Like, each time I rewatch Drive, I'm like, Albert Brooks is unbelievable in this film. I mean, he's almost as it's good incredible. as Ryan Gosling, if not as good. It's so understated. He, like, legit scares me as a character. Yeah. He is clearly yeah. dangerous. He's like a wolf in sheep's clothing as clear as day. Um, you somehow know he's a bad dude well before he kills that guy in the most brutal fashion uh, just to prove a point in a pizza parlor, you know, the now it's yeah. your turn to clean up after me, which good Lord, what a line delivery. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he is the he's the definition of like this guy is a predator and you feel it the entire film. And the fact that he conveys that while also delivering these cheesy, very much like I want to be your friend <laughs> lines like he's amazing. It's it's a perfect performance <laughs> as a character actor. I think it's in. It's it's interesting too. It's a little bit of an against type role for him. He he tended to be much more. I, I like he explicitly was looking for something outside of his mm. uh, normal mo, where he's a little a little fluffier, a little bit kinder. Um, sure. The the movie I most knew him from, uh, 
I don't know if you even realize this, Mike. The voice of Marlin in Finding Nemo. Oh, no, no I did it. That's uh, wild. So kills a, a lot of people of in that movie too. Yeah, again, very brutal performance, but but in a different way, right? Um, <laughs> of my heart. In this movie, in this movie, <laughs> what I wrote, you know, because I think you're right. He lands like the highly civilized evil kind yeah. of vibe, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's a good um, way to put it. I like that. That because because it is it's like it's like overly like put together almost. Yeah. It's, it's actually, and, and I don't want to necessarily go too far down this road because it's kind of my essay, but it is kind of the the inverse of the driver of Ryan yeah. Gosling's character who the driver is like theoretically a good guy, but is sort of out of control. And this is like, well, he's doing these bad things, but he never appears out of control in any way. No. Right. He appears like he always is doing exactly what he wants to be doing. He appears out of control in the context of the situation, but his own control over himself is always there. Um, I did write, you know, that scene where I'm, I, this may come up later too, but the scene where he kills Cranston is just incredible. Yeah. Um, after it's, he slices it's already his over. Wrist oh he, my God. Yeah. yeah. It's already over. There's no more pain. He says no more pain. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's beautiful. It's, it's a lot like the movie. It's like overly violent. It's terrifying. It's kind of beautiful. It's um, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I actually have a quote um, from Albert Brooks talking about this movie. He said, there are six people you could always get to play this kind of part. And I like that the director is thinking outside of the box. For me, it was an opportunity to act outside the box. I liked that this mobster had real style. Also, he doesn't get up in the morning thinking about killing people. He's sad about it, upset about it. It's a case of look what you made me do. I thought mm, that was great. That's it's like that yeah. that reading of that character that yep. you know there is this regret to him. There's this like, but it's like again, not, it's just so it's, different than. But it's also like not real. You know, I think that's sure. what I love about him is like you said, civilized evil where he's just perfected the mask that he wears, but it's still just a mask, right? The regret isn't actually regret. It's more of like a, I, I know that this is how I need to present myself if I want to be a civilized person is I have to be like, oh, shucks. Look what I had to do again. But it's like, oh, you, you don't have to stab that guy in the throat. I actually, I, I, you know, um, I'll say I'm not actually sure if I agree with you, but sure. let's maybe put a pin in it because okay. my essay will kind of talk about that a little bit too. But I'm not, let, let's just leave it out. I'm not totally sure if, sure. Uh, if he's not sincerely regretful. I think there might be an interesting reading if he is. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But either way, I think you're right that, that or you're right insofar that it's like, yeah, that is... He had there's a complexity to how he's portrayed, yeah, right? And there's yeah. he's he has a very interesting role in the movie and certainly comes out of nowhere. The turn, you're right, the turn when he kills Cook in the pizza restaurant is like kind of a gut punch that kicks you into the last yeah. act of the movie. You're like, right? oh, this it's guy's like, an oh, animal. My God. Jesus. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> really good. It goes from zero to a hundred. This movie in general goes from zero yeah. to a hundred real fast. Yeah. Um the only other one I actually made any notes about, I probably should have written something about Brian Cranston and Oscar Isaac, but the only other person I have notes about is actually Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. Um, before this movie, I'd only seen her in one Doctor Who episode. She's a guest. Uh, she's a guest in Blink, which is actually a really the best great episode. Shout the best. out. Hashtag. Have you seen that episode? Oh For yeah, real? it's like the only episode that show I've seen, and it's super good. That's crazy, but it is an amazing episode. Yeah. So I guess that and it also stands on its own. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's even that much to say. She just kills it a lot. It's very similar to Gosling in that she has to 
sell a lot of things without the traditional ways that you would think an actor would have to sell something. So she doesn't get like this this meaty like dialogue of of like, oh, I love you so much. So yeah. you know, all this great stuff. Um, the script must say at some points, like, she stares at him longingly for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she has to do that and not make it cheesy and make you buy <laughs> their relationship or, or, and all the conflict just, she has with her husband. She's and, just in a room with Ryan Gosling and she just does that. You know, I don't know. He's yeah. such a stud. <laughs> Maybe that's it's what we like... all do. And we're just, <laughs> if you met Ryan Gosling, this is what you do. You just sit there looking, staring at each other. No direction like, needed. Tuts. He's like, how did I'm you how now, did you capture that? She's like, capture what? <laughs> that was just the vibe. I'm imagining now that someone buys a charity auction, like a dinner with Ryan Gosling. Yes. And they go to dinner and they're like, hey, Ryan, uh, I'm kind of thinking about the steak. What do you think about it? He just stares at them. <laughs> and they get stuck into this moment where they're like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> just looking and then he stops someone's face into the ground. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Beautiful yeah. moment. Yeah, Beautiful I can't moment. say enough about their chemistry in this movie because I, I think it kind of like hinges on that as much as it hinges on the internalized performance from Gosling. Like there has to be a a felt reason for why Gosling's character would throw away his rules as hard, like massively as he does to try to help this person. Because um, yeah. you're supposed to like pick up on this idea that Ryan Gosling generally is not someone who breaks his rules. And yet for this person, he does. And that's what spirals the movie into debauchery in a lot of ways. And and I think the fact that that that's a dance that takes two to tango, right? And she yeah. is more than game to, without dialogue, like you were saying, really develop that chem- chemistry. I think one of the things that, that the movie does a really good job with is that they, she does a really good job of contrasting this like really innate awkwardness when she's relating to Oscar Isaac that completely mm. melts away when she's with Ryan Gosling's character, right? And yeah. that kind of lets you pick up on, oh, this is why this woman is so obsessed with Gosling, even though there might be something deeper and mysterious about him. But at the same time, it also helps you pick up on why Ryan Gosling is going to inevitably destroy his life in the pursuit of helping this person. Um, yeah. And yeah, and, and a lot of that is Carrie Mulligan meeting Gosling halfway, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, that's all I have written down for actors. Do you, did you want to talk about any of the other? Yeah, I just want to shout out. I want to shout out the two you mentioned. I think Brian Cranston is a perfect foil to Gosling, and he is perfectly yeah. game to be quick wit, talk too much, down in your luck character. I just like I like him. He does a really good job doing a role that's really not asking a ton of his acting ability. Remarkably similar to his Malcolm in the Middle character. A hundred percent. Like. It's like the, uh, that how, dad, right? Yeah, yeah. You could you you could just transplant him. It's like if that dad, it could be the same world. That dad just things went real bad for his family. <laughs> he got out. He started a, started a garage, and uh, there we go. Yep, yep. And then um, yeah, I think Oscar Isaac like is amazing in this movie, but he's also ridiculously overqualified for what he's asked to do in it. So it's kind of yeah. weird to talk about him. But like the scene where he's like trying to get his son to come back to him after being beaten up in the alley is like a a phenomenal little performance. Um, oh no, it's great. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know, man. He's just like, why are you in this movie? How did this happen? Because what know. I would say too, the scene right after that, he basically has like ten minutes to yeah. flex, right? Yeah. And he, he uses all of them because he has that scene, and then right afterwards is when he's, um, it's it's cut between him at dinner with the family and then him telling the driver, yeah, you know the whole situation, and I think especially him talking to driver because 
he's selling and you know maybe i just know the motivation so i'm reading into it but i feel like he's doing a great job of landing this like i don't really want to trust this guy because i kind of recognize there's a little something with him and my wife and you know i'm i'm feel weird about that but also i don't have any help and i'm here and i'm you know and i'm at the bottom of the of the well and, and i got nothing um that's a that's a complex emotional state to convey and he sells that little hesitancy that little i don't really want to talk to him but i have to all of that he lands it it's great cool uh well mike i have a few more things for what makes this movie work but they're pretty short can i just sort of steamroll through these yeah let's do it um there's surprisingly little of it but the driving and action is in fact awesome um the driving especially uh apparently they shied away from cgi for a mm. lot of the the action in general and yeah, i think that, that really shows yeah that. especially yeah. in those driving scenes uh i do want to shout out this might even be long enough for us both to comment but I do want to shout out the opening scene you already mentioned. Um, it actually comes up in What Holds the Movie Back, which we'll get to. But really quick, it's such a good scene for getting you. I, I, like Especially the first time I saw the movie, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. Um, yes, I don't know. Yes. I did a little research. Uh, I don't know if you even noticed this. I did not realize this until I read it. During that entire quote-unquote chase, because again, there's very little chasing. It's just sort of tension, right? But during that entire chase, the camera never leaves the interior of the car because they wanted you to feel the insularity of that. Like, so you don't get this shot, you know, where you see the cop car or whatever. It's only from the perspective inside the car. Yeah. So you feel that like locked in that, like looking around corners for helicopters and cops and the music is just driving you, no pun intended, forward. And it's just a perfect scene uh every time i watch it i'm just instantly in the movie i think that's the best thing i can say about it i'm just like okay i have to watch this whole movie now um the in general a small story told really well will Mm. trump a big story told badly for me and this is an example of the uh former yeah of yeah the former yeah um I just, yeah, I just think that's always so key is like tell a small story really, really, really effectively. And that's so, so good. Yeah, I think uh, um, real quick yeah. on that real quick. Uh, one of the central what works about this movie for me is that I think this is actually like a perfect indie film. And what I mean by that yeah. is and I actually don't even know if it's an indie movie, but it has what I imagine an indie movie would be, which is that it's a contained story, two big leads, whole bunch of character actors strong vibes and some sort of innovation in a known genre. And that's like Mm. what I want from a small stakes movie like this, right? Is I want that little bit of innovation and I want that little bit of style and I want the containment with some good acting and this film delivers on all fronts. So just wanted to throw that in there. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. Yep. Yep. Um, In general, this is a very tragic movie. I just want to call out that the way the driver sheepishly excuse me, sheepishly proposes coming with Irene and Benicio while, while he knows that he can't really go. Like everyone knows, we know, she knows, he knows that that's not really going to happen. Yeah. It's just like a really profoundly emotionally tragic scene. I just want to call it out. Cause it was just, it was so gutting. I think this time watching it, I'm talking about when he's on the phone, remember yeah. Yeah. talking to her and he's like, maybe I can come with you guys and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you just know he's not going to. And it's like, Oh man. Um, I think that's pretty much it. What do you have? What do you have, Mike? 
Uh, I think we've already said the runtime, but if we haven't, ah, chef's kiss. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, the violence of this movie is the only other big one, which I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about in my monologue. So we'll talk about that more later. But the fact mm. that there aren't many scenes of violence in this movie, and it still feels like one of the most violent or appalling, as they say, movies ever made is a testament to how effective its violence is. It is jarring, yeah. it is sudden, it is shocking, it is realistic, and it is ultimately impactful. And I think yeah. that is the best way to use violence in cinema unless you are trying to intentionally spoof violence like Kill Bill. So if you're going mm. to actually say something about violence, do it in a way that's impactful, and this movie absolutely does. Yeah, and that even gets to, which we're going to get into the essays later, but the the elevator scene I think of is oh. almost like the heart of the movie is, in a yeah. sense. And yeah. And it lives because of the intense surprise of the violence. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. The, you already brought up the theater experience, but there was mul- that scene. There's multiple scenes in this movie where I had the theater like viscerally re- react to a, yeah. an act of violence. And that just tells you all you need to know about the effectiveness of it. Yeah, 100%. Okay, Mike, uh, in this section of the podcast, we just have what holds this movie back, what maybe doesn't work. I actually only have two things. So I'm just going to go real quick. I just have two things. Um, First one, I sort of hinted at it earlier, that opening scene. The problem is, on the rewatch, it loses a little steam. Mm. The first time I saw this movie, I remember that scene, I was like, I was in. I was physically on the edge of my seat. I was so so in on this movie because it's so enticing immediately and on the rewatch you know that kind of where it's going and that it's not actually that impactful to the plot and so it was kind of just like okay this is a great scene i was sort of just appreciating it but it just doesn't have the same pull that it does initially yeah i Um, I actually i have that on my notes for both of them um the the main driving scenes i actually like i will always have in the back of my mind the shot where in slow motion the other car flips and the Oscar yeah. Isaac getaway. And I was like, oh, yeah, the scene leading up to that was so thrilling. And it is like a really good stunt scene, but it didn't capture me remotely as strongly this time around. So, yeah, all to say, yeah, ditto. same thing. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and then this one almost is a stray thought, but I, I felt so strongly about it. I moved it okay. up to what holds the movie back. Uh, I consider it a plot hole that Rosen did such a bad job attempting to kill the driver at the end. Yeah, um, like so, it's, dude, I had this. Got? I said, bear with me the ending. And not the ending, <laughs> yeah. not the ending as a whole, but just that the final moment between him and Bernie is just like, I just don't think it's very it's good. It's such a letdown. Even yeah, like the mutual so, stabbing is like, okay, <laughs> like what? It feels like the script realized Oh, this movie has to end. Exactly. And said, well, Rosen tries to stab him and somehow doesn't, like, does, but doesn't kill him or anything. And then Driver just stabs him back and he dies. The end, and and you're like, wait, what? And it's not the end. And the aesthetics kind of help save it because then you have, like, that great shot with the music and the song and her her going to his door and knocking. So the ending still works. 
But that specific moment Absolutely. did feel a little bit like it just lost a lot of steam. And especially, it was just very, like, especially like after the um, the amazing showdown in the restaurant, you know? Yeah. Where he's like, yeah. he, I forgot the line, but he's like, and you know I can't offer you the same thing. He's like, here's, here's, the, yeah. here's what I'll offer you, right? Um, you yeah. just spend the rest of your life she running. I out. just want to be straight with you, right? And yeah, it's a great little showdown, and and it's very anticlimactic to have two shadows stabbing each other. <laughs> In a way, like I said earlier, this feels in, like this is this is a neo noir film, and it's also kind of a Clint Eastwood, Eastwood western. It that feels like a very old movie, yeah. like anticlimactic ending. You know, like the way old movies will just be like, oh, and then this guy just died, and that's the scene that's the end and you're like oh that kind well, of expected that to be a bigger deal and it's weird because i think of that style with like no country and it's super sure. effective in no country but no country has been building that as a major theme that there are no heroes there are no heroic deaths that we're all just humans in this like chaotic nihilistic world so it's effective in that movie this movie has been like super stylized super exaggerated super like jacked up to 150 percent and I just don't really get why you'd make that creative choice in a, a movie that yeah. has not been building that theme at all. So I don't know. That's all I got. It's yeah, weird. Totally it's weird. Uh, well, that's all I have for what holds this movie back. What do you got? Um, you know, there, I think this is, this is like a, a middle ground one. We actually kind of talked about this a little bit with the matrix too. I, I don't want the movie to be longer but Carrie Mulligan's character is still kind of like a prop at times, and so is Oscar Isaac in this movie. And I sure. I don't think that's actually a, a, a... I think that's probably a feature, not a bug, because I don't want any more runtime. Yeah, because the alternative a, is the pacing is going to get slower. Exactly. And, and, and I, I do think she does a great job with very little, so I just want to shout it out that we know she doesn't have much character other than mom and love interest, right? Um, sure. No, you're, and that's true, yeah. Uh, this is one that I, I this hurts me John this hurts me let's do it let's go Ron Perlman <laughs> is so <laughs> unbelievably distracting in this movie and I know he's supposed to be but uh, John yeah. John I quote now this that is one motherfucking fine ass pussy mobile motherfucker yeah I was wondering if that <laughs> quote was gonna was gonna make it in. I um, do not know what to do with that line, how he delivers that line, and how it fits in the rest of this movie. But it does not fit the vibes of the movie. I think that's intentional. I went back and forth. I'm going to I don't I'm like be honest it. with you. I just don't like it. That's all I'm saying. I went back and forth on this one because you yeah. were vocal about not liking this before we did. So, so yeah. Mike and I text, obviously. Mike texted about this. Um, on the one hand, I think... I think you use the best possible word for why this would be negative, which is it, it does distract quite a lot. His performance is so out of left field and so, so kind of weird. Wild. Um, <laughs> it's a little distracting. Part of me almost saw it as like a salve for the yeah, intensity sure. of the rest of the movie, right? Like you're in this movie where there's, there's very little laughs. There's very little levity of any kind. And then you have this kind of bonkers off the wall character um that i thought was sort of maybe meant to do that uh ultimately i i think i probably agree because i didn't yeah. put them in what makes this movie work you know i'm like yeah. yeah i i i think you're getting back you're not getting a good return on investment 
from as much as and I'm with you. This one hurts. I love yeah. I love me some Rob Roman. Yeah. I really do. And I mean, like um, the single shot through the pizza parlor like window where he's laughing in slow motion while the woman is like obviously not interested in anything great. is like a yeah. perfect like vengeance fuel for like yeah that's all i need to see to justify his death you know um he's just like you get who this character is i just don't know it fits the movie even and this scene will come up in stray thoughts for not very good reasons but but even the scene where they're on the beach and gosling's gonna kill him like he's he's doing some work there he's selling some stuff but but yeah I, i could i could agree with that yeah my last one is kind of just uh, we got to take a temperature check this is now 10 years later the 10 year anniversary what mm-hmm. does the scorpion jacket fit in the worked or didn't work 10 years later uh i i i would like to recuse myself because okay. i just don't think like I, I'm, I'm just too t- at this some like, point in my life like Mike, comedy you just don't want to relitigate this you can't you can't but, well and <laughs> i was gonna say and this is gonna become dangerously close to a therapy session for a moment mike as i've turned 30 i've learned a lot of things i've had to accept about myself and i i think there's things in life you just have to be like hey this is what i am and this is what i am not at some point, I decided I'm just not. I can't judge style. I can't judge sure. clothing style. That's fair. I'm that's just fair. not good at it. People yeah. are just like, "This is stylish. That's not." And I'm like, "I just don't see it. I'm sorry. I want to. I just can't." And this that's... is an example where I, I I look at that and I think, to me, yeah, that should always play. Does it though? <laughs> I just don't know, Mike. It's so funny don't... because I thought I you suspect were building... it does not. You were building up to make the opposite point, and it caught me off guard. That you were like, "I think it's great." I thought you. I think like, it's perfect. I think I would wear it. I would wear it uh, seven days a week if I could. But there's some part of my brain that says I feel like I could be calling that one wrong. Oh I feel like, my god! I feel like this one isn't gonna land. I feel okay. like I'm not Ryan Gosling, and I can't sell it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I was a little bit of a journey, but I just wanted to take you on the journey with me. This is this it was is worth the ride. Are. It was worth the drive. Ah, yes. Hey, now we can retire the podcast. Um, <laughs> do you have anything else for what holds this movie back? Bing. No, okay. Done. <laughs> okay. Uh, stray thoughts. We're kind of there already. Stray thoughts. Mike and I just go back and forth. There's stray thoughts. I don't know. I don't even know why I keep trying to explain this section before we go into it john i want to go first i want to go first this time go first so i'm so proud of this one yeah what you got so john you have recently gotten into nba basketball correct yes is this do we have the same first note so i have a question for you do we have the same first note is the biggest problem with the opening heist that that many people are attending a clippers game Ah. (laughs) this was gonna be my second big basketball joke i was so excited i was telling mike i was ragging on russell westbrook online the other day and i was so excited that i had this this note right and right here of have there ever been that many people at clippers game ever <laughs> yes. that was what i wrote i had to that jump was what ahead. i wrote I had to get ahead of it <sighs> you, you're you you're me. telling me you scooped me you're telling me that the police this is 2011 catch this guy too. you please catch this guy because that many people we're going to watch. What was this even? Lob City. It makes no sense. So you're telling me it makes no sense that in Blake Griffin's first year, when they won almost no games, and actually oh, he actually that. might have just gotten injured in that season. I actually don't remember if he mm-hmm. played. 
Um, I, you're telling me that many people showed up to a game where the police could not catch this guy. Is that what you're telling me, John? <laughs> where they blended into the crowd in a scorpion. I guess he wasn't wearing the scorpion jacket when he was trying to blend, but all the same, it's an incredible poll. It's yeah. a, it's what. What? It's also Los Angeles, so they could have just Chris Paul wasn't they even just done there a Lakers yet. Game. Chris Paul wasn't even there yet, John. <laughs> my second, my my first point is related. Um, shout outs to the Staples Center call out. Yeah, um, Mike. Well, as long as we're here, just like quick temperature check, Mike. Crypto.com Center, in or out? So I love the idea of calling it the crypt. I think that's great. I think the crypt is amazing. Um, I think I, it's particularly I, I think, amazing because they don't want, like they have actively tried to forbid people officially from calling it that. Yeah. So I don't think they want to trademark it. I think that's it. a great poll. But right. here's the deal. Let's not forget that Staples Center was named after the company Staples, which sold <laughs> Staples. <laughs> and, and I should not they sold care. other things. I should not care that an office supply store no longer has a basketball stadium. And I don't. Here's what I so care I about. So I won't. I'm going to do... There's two things I care about. One, I think in general it's dumb that so many things in sports are named after companies. That's yeah. just so, so annoying to me. Uh, so that's just my overall take. My second take is crypto is like a scam and it's yeah, killing... I'm, like, I'm with you. The environment. And but like, so is every... Trash. I mean, so is every other major corporation. So whatever. That's true. So, so we're all... So capitalism is trash and the the world is ending and and we did it good time right, I, I got a question i got a question for you hit me hit me this hit is me. this yeah. this relates really deeply to your existential crisis yeah who invites someone over to their place for a glass of water <laughs> it's i wondered if it would work that was more my takeaway is <laughs> like if i if i met Ryan Gosling. And that's the direction, right? She invites him over with a yeah, glass of water. For a glass of water. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. what? Not a then beer? Again, maybe not juice. Not anything. Maybe I can't we're get thinking about sink. this. But see, that's what I'm saying. Maybe you're thinking about it wrong. Maybe the question is is what kind of person, if they invited you for a glass of water, would you accept? If Carrie mm. Mulligan lived yeah. in my apartment building and was like, Hey, do you want to come over for a glass of water? I'm like, Yes. I yes I you absolutely I would but, like no I'm in no lady I got a sink why would I do that <laughs> that would be her pull <laughs> scoff at her and be like Psh, I have water bet your water isn't even filtered like the stuff lead. in the toilet that's an idiocracy callback <laughs> anyway let's let's move on <laughs> um I read some of the book mm. it's pretty interesting okay. it's written non-linearly. Oh. Uh, apparently, so the the screenwriter said that was a huge challenge. So, like the first chapter in the book is actually Driver sitting on the floor of the hotel after he's killed the two guys that came for him and and Blanche. Okay, mm. that's like the the book opens with him on the floor. Interesting, and then it cuts back and forth over the entire course of the movie. Pretty interesting. That is interesting. Um, it's weird to me that this movie is based on a book, though. Like yeah. even having read some of the book, I was just like, it's just not it's the kind of movie so that you visual, think of as yeah. being, yeah, as being Though, as a book based. I guess the counter is that his internal his internal world would be a lot more fleshed out in the book. So, which it is, know. and that, yeah. that is true. Like it, the yeah. book is from his perspective, and definitely, you know, a lot of stuff that in the movie is just implicit becomes very explicit. Like, yeah. oh, I, you know, what he's that feeling and stuff. So, you know, 
that, that's true. But what yet? Um, is this just Lars and the real girl? If Lars was a murderer, that's all I wrote. <laughs> He's really uh, quiet next... in both movies. He's very internalized yeah. in both movies. Uh, one yeah. of them has a sex doll relationship. This one, he stomps the guy's face into the ground. So I don't. Is this, is this sl- just is this my my next point stone? is is this just Blade Runner twenty forty nine if it's in twenty ten in Los Angeles? <laughs> well, Blade Runner is in Los Angeles if it's in twenty ten, and uh, there's no replicants. I mean, like like yeah. other than that, this is just that story. This is just yeah. that world. It's just that character. Fair, I love it. Uh, the line "My hands are a little dirty, so are mine" is actually one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. I think it's like noir, uh, noir gold. You know, I didn't realize it until this moment, but is that not just word for word a scene from Empire Strikes Back when they're repairing the ship? I mean, she doesn't say she says my hands are dirty and he says so are mine. What are you afraid of when they're leading up to the kiss? Right. I don't even know. So, man, you tell, uh, you tell, this movie's you tell a scam. Me, John. Just ripping off Empire Strikes Back, cutting journalism on here. Um, you're right, though. It's an amazing line. I've all, always had this all question. All you need to say, John. <laughs> always had this question. Why did he kill Ron Perlman with the mask disguise on? I get why he, why the driver <laughs> no, initially wore it. I don't. No. Right, going up to the going up to the 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 party and stuff. It's like okay, he's you know that makes sense. At some point, it's just him and Ron Perlman on the beach, and he drowns him. But he wears the mask the whole time, and honestly, Ron Perlman at that point probably even knows that it is him. I just don't get why he why he's still doing that. Can you explain yeah. that to me, Mike? No, yeah. I I do have two related. I'm just gonna knock out two of mine that are related to that scene. Go. So yeah. first is when he's wearing the fake face at the end, he looks straight up like a Team America doll. Just throwing that one out into the world. <laughs> Man, that's really accurate. Yep. The, it, the like kind of dead eyes. Yeah, it, 100%. It hit me. I was like, oh my God. Um, and then second, where is Ron Perlman running to in that scene? Like what was, what's the plan, Chief? Like the he's running water? into the ocean? <laughs> Yeah. Like, what? Mike, if I put you on a beach between the I killer and the ocean. I would try to run down the beach, not you're into the run waves. towards the water. <laughs> He's going back to the sea. I don't know. Maybe it makes yeah. sense. I mean, between that and Bernie's plan of stabbing Driver at the end, I just have, like, a lot of questions about how these people were so, like, successful in the underground crime world. But at the same time, I just watched The Sopranos, which really tries to demystify criminals. So I don't know. Maybe they, sure. that's just how crime works. They're all idiots. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's, it's more accurate. I don't know. <laughs> maybe he thought he could swim away. I don't <laughs> Maybe he just thought he could do it. Honestly, if I'm in the life or death situation, some part of my brain thinks I can swim pretty far. <laughs> I, can, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's like a Gattaca sort of situation. How far is like... midway from here? What do you think? Can I make it? Uh, Hugh Jackman initially attached to this project as mm. a star. Am I crazy? Or would that have been actually amazing? I was thinking of Logan a lot, right? Like, I feel like like if he's driver in this movie, that's a very Logan-adjacent role. I think certainly, uh, like, he's grittier. Yeah. He's closer to, like, Clint Eastwood, like, kind of vibes. But I think he sells it. I don't know. I'd watch that. I don't know. I don't know if it's better, but I think it'd be really good. 
it's definitely not better. I would go as far as to say I could definitively probably say that because I don't know if he can go as inward as Ryan Gosling can. Like the the low key parts, I'm not sure he sells as nearly as well as Gosling. Brooding ex- silence, yeah. Yep. The yeah. explosive parts, the gritty parts, like yeah, I mean, that's him. That's like what even he was like to do. even like driving at night and looking out a window. I'm yeah, like, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. So I, yeah, part of me thinks it'd be interesting. I'm glad. I'm glad with what we got though. I think we got yeah. ultimately the best version of the movie. But yeah, yeah. Um, my next one was oh boo hoo. Carrie Mulligan has to pick between Ryan Gosling and Ice, Oz, Oscar Isaac. What a Shakespearean <laughs> tragedy! <laughs> it's so tough for her. It's so yeah. tough. Life is suffering. Life is suffering, man. Um, this is my last point. Uh, I feel bad for, I feel bad for this entire point. Okay. Let's just get that out. Okay. Does this movie's existence make baby driver worse? So let me, let me just walk you through this. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just walk the audience through it. I guess then. Because on the because on the one hand you think okay these are very different movies so it's like why are we even comparing them but they came out like so Drive came out six years before it's not the same genre but there's eerie similarities quiet gifted driver at the center of a criminal heist that goes horribly wrong trying to hold on to a waitress that he's fallen in love with there's that sentence is the, exactly the same movie to movie and and even in certain style things there's a lot of similarities. Baby Driver is sort of an incredible movie, but if I had to compare them, Drive is like 400 times as impactful, right? So I'm just yes. like, does this movie existing make Baby Driver worse by com- by just forced comparison, essentially? Yep. I just, I told you at the beginning, yes. Just yes. Uh, cool. Well, that's it for me. Mike, what do you got? Oh, I got actually a lot more, so... You want me just to bang through these? Yeah, just yeah, just bang through these. Uh, the L.A. Quarry. Do you think that kid got cancer from playing in that water? <sighs> anyway, let's just, let's just move on. Let's just got a couple of points about uh, just the men in this movie. First, is the L.A. underworld just full of stunningly beautiful people? Was thinking Obviously. of Ryan Gosling and Oscar Isaac. Honestly, um, I lived in or I, I lived in California. California does have like markedly better looking people than uh, they, Florida. You had it here first. I'm just, I was gonna say it. Like answer, just, just straight yes. up. Uh, New York beats both of them though. So yeah, fair. Yeah, Tallahassee, Florida beats them all. Because um, mm. I'm I'm here anyway. Carrie Mulligan, staple in men. I really don't want to shame the woman, but let's talk about that. We've yeah. got scumbag. Yeah. Jailed father, Oscar Isaac, who can't do anything right. And then we've got, I murdered a man by stopping his face into nothing in an elevator next to you and Ryan Gosling. And then she goes looking for him at the end of the movie. You know? He also... Got got questions about her taste. Oscar Isaac's character also tells the story where they met and then learns while telling the story that she was 17 at the time. Yeah, which you think you'd remember. I mean, whatever. That's kind of a deal. You think is... A thing. Yeah. Well, Well, no, he didn't know until that point. She tells him and he's like, what? Let me yeah. let me put it this way. If you cared about things like that, that probably would be a known detail. And his it's character probably, yeah, clearly does Probably up front. Tough, anyway. Tough beat. Tough beat for uh, Karen Morgan. Just beating up on uh, the women of the movie, Mike. Yeah, dude, See how it is? I'm just saying she should, you know, do some... Go to therapy, probably. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> wow. 
There. Um, I mean, that's true. Everyone in this movie should go to therapy. Ryan Gosling tells a kid that there are no good sharks or whatever, or the kid says that. I don't remember which one does. Yeah, what but the like, hell? What the hell, dude? <laughs> Get out of here with that. Sharks are an endangered species for this the is most what, part. This what is what has led here? to the depletion of shark populations around the world. This and Jaws. Man. It's nonsense. Um, I, didn't even think, I didn't even think about that. There is a beautiful alternative reality where Oscar Isaac, Carey Mulligan, and Ryan Gosling form a wonderful polyamorous family. And oh well. Well, Moving if on. only we could live in that world now. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Giving a bullet to a cute kid is ultimate revenge fuel. Yeah. Thoughts? You got thoughts? That's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy power play. I you respect like, it. Dang, I'm dude. impressed. <laughs> which, I'm impressed. Which, relatedly, ultimate power play is putting a bullet to someone's forehead while holding a hammer over them. <laughs> That yeah, like, that, that that one's also pretty strong. Lots of, lots of power plays in this movie in general. Yeah, which, yeah. another related point, how crappy do you have to be as a person in order to sit in a room of strippers whom you employ, get beat with a hammer, and have literally not one of them flinch? Yeah, and they are they are chilling. They are, they are just fi- they, not interested. They even, like, if I recall, one of them even kind of weighs in to, like, kind of, yeah help out like like oh well you know oh you're talking about this guy just super cash though it's great well that's the other possibility what if it's not what if this is just like tuesday you know that's this is fair just, oh, this guy gets beat with a hammer pretty often this week's one well, he gets murdered but like maybe also it's just like that just happens like oh this week's crime you know boss is getting beat up i guess we'll see who the next guy is you know it's like whatever. I, I like to think that people just come in often and beat up the same guy with like various power tools and whatnot it just is like his his routine. <laughs> just kind of um, his vibe. Last one. I like to imagine that the driver doesn't die at the end and just like is bleeding and just like gets in his car and goes for a drive because that's just like it's what a good he does. question. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I I also like to imagine that. However, no, I, I also he's take it for granted. Dead, but what? No, I think he so. might live. No. He'll be fine. What I do think is he never ever goes back to Irene. Oh, I yeah, think he definitely. lives, but he he leaves L.A. because he doesn't want to bring any more heat on her. And I think he does. And he also has decided internally that they can't work. So, uh, he doesn't die. You're, uh, he dies. You're, he dies. No, he, he totally lives. It's a happy ending. Shut up. Nope. <laughs> do you have anything else? <laughs> is that That's it? That's it. Jeez, uh, that was so long. Oh man, the director what? says that he doesn't die. Yes. We got in there, boys. Happy endings, he said, girl. He said, well, all my films have open endings. Well, that's not actually. Oh, yeah. What? That's a weird I was going to say, that could go either way then. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> it's a weird, a weird interpretation of that quote. Anyway, a lot of people think he dies. Or does not die. Even though, obviously, he doesn't. But he, No, I'm saying a lot of people agree with you. But you're wrong. Uh, we're all right. Anyway, strength in numbers. All right, we'll stick around. Right after the break, we're going to get into our essays. So stick around. Hey guys, in this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay that kind of goes deeper into some aspect of the movie or maybe just tangents off something that we find interesting. Mike, I think I go first this week, if that's okay. Cool. Here we go. I first saw Drive back in 2011. 
At that time, I was a sophomore at Florida State University. Obama was three years into his first term. LeBron James was in his first season at Miami. Global pandemics were confined to the realms of history books and speculative fiction. I saw Drive at the FSU Student Theater, where its neon-drenched aesthetic and intense violence didn't actually feel particularly out of place. At the regular theater, though, Drive in 2011 was a bit of an anomaly. It's odd to consider how people had been lamenting the rise of superhero movies as early as 2004, but by 2011, Marvel was rapidly approaching an apex of popular storytelling prowess. Just one year later, in 2012, they would release The Avengers, a key marker on their way to sheer dominance at the box office throughout the remaining 2010s. Drive, releasing right in the middle of the MCU's meteoric rise, is so tonally antithetical to the Marvel machine, it's kind of crazy. Drive is violent and angsty and dark. It's filled with brooding silences and mesmerizing cityscapes. Marvel films have a certain poppiness, a brightly colored, bubbly texture that makes them perfect popcorn movies. They're not really intense cinema in the way Drive is. But while Drive is not a superhero movie at all, I do think it enters into the same cultural conversation as those Marvel movies. In fact, Drive, as a faithful revival of the classic noir genre with a new aesthetic, short-circuits the entire lingo of good guy, bad guy, which is so integral to superhero movies. The noir genre is known for being dark and cynical, but its stories are not dark because the characters are particularly evil. They're dark because the circumstances the characters are thrown into are so inescapable. This is a key difference from not just superhero movies, but a lot of basic storytelling. In noir, the situation is the enemy, often more so than the actual antagonists. And I think Drive is fully aware of this aspect of its genre, of this tension. Driver, our protagonist, sort of lives in the intersection of a fantasy superhero world and a gritty noir world. He sees himself, particularly in the first half of the film, as an unequivocal hero. He keeps his head down. He drives for criminals, but is strict and disciplined and professional. He helps, befriends, and falls in love with Irene and her son Benicio out of genuine affection, without any ulterior motives. And when that love story is cut short at her husband's release from prison, he even tries to help that husband escape a blood debt in order to help Irene and Benicio. The film goes so far towards depicting Driver's self-perception as a hero that the audience gets tricked into the same deception as well. We are conditioned to look for good guys in entertainment. We create narratives in which our favorite teams are noble and their rivals are ignoble. We get a rush when we read a headline on Instagram about our favorite politicians sticking it to the evil opposing party. We turn out in droves to see Marvel movies, all because we love a hero. We crave for a good guy. And in the first half of Drive, we're as eager to accept Driver's good guy role as he is. But then things fall apart starting with the husband's death and the botched robbery. When we see Driver next, emotionally distraught, frenzied, panicked, his actions start to track well outside of what we expect of heroic good guys. He physically assaults and intimidates Blanche, though she is as visibly traumatized as he is. He violently tortures and threatens Cook. He becomes less calm, less cool, 
more emotional, and more capable of horrific violence. This culminates in the elevator scene, when, after sharing an intimate moment of mutual affection with Irene, he so brutally murders a potential threat that she can only stare at him in stunned silence. That scene in particular is key because a hero, a quote-unquote good guy, would not behave that way. He wouldn't scare his love interest like that, wouldn't let his emotional state so nakedly color his retribution. Though the driver has been going against the pure good guy character for a while, this is the crystallization of that character progression. And for myself, it was the moment I truly started to consider the possibility that Driver wasn't being painted as a good guy, but as something much more complex. Interestingly, Drive also depicts this breakdown of the good-bad dichotomy in reverse. Bernie Rosen, the low-level crime boss, seems affable, if mildly threatening, at the beginning of the film. Astute viewers may pick him out to be the eventual antagonist, but I suspect most people were fairly surprised to find, once things go sour, that Bernie was capable of as much horrific violence as Driver. That, at least, would seem to make sense. Bernie is the bad guy. Bad guys do bad things. But notice the way Bernie goes about his violence spree. Unlike Driver, unlike Thanos or 90% of Marvel villains, he doesn't take joy in what he's doing. He doesn't wax on about a grand plan or how this is for the greater good. He doesn't relish their suffering. He doesn't taunt people. From the first moment that Bernie realizes he will have to kill countless people in order to survive, he gives off an aura of cool sadness, of a professional being forced to do something he truly wishes he could avoid. Consider that iconic scene when Bernie slashes Shepard's wrist. The tension has been mounting. It's clear that Bernie is here for Shepard, but after he finally attacks him with a knife, Bernie just gently shushes him, holds him, consoles him, tells him that it's over, there's no pain, he will only die quietly. Rewatching the film, I felt strongly that Bernie comes across as a noticeably more good character than Driver, if only because he's less emotionally vindictive. Driver is evidently willing to go to extreme, extreme lengths to protect the things he loves. Bernie will only go as far as he has to, regretting all the while the violent action he is forced to take in order to survive. In the end, Bernie even offers Driver a way for Irene to escape the whole situation alive. It's as if he knows that they are not truly fighting each other, but the situation they're in, like he's trying to rescue whatever innocent people he can from a sinking ship. In this blown-up dichotomy, the strange reversal at the heart of Drive and Noir matters because of the scene when Benicio and Driver are watching a cartoon together. Benicio says he can tell who the bad guy is because, quote-unquote, he's a shark. It's that simple for him. He looks, makes a connection with cartoons he's seen before, and draws the obvious conclusion. In other words, Benicio has created a stereotype for cartoon sharks that includes bad guys, and by applying it to new shows he watches, can intuitively identify who the quote-unquote bad guys are. It may seem inconsequential to form the stereotype that sharks are bad guys, but the reality is a shocking number of our internal stereotypes are formed in much the same way. 
We take in media and culture and gradually create a set of litmus tests we can apply anywhere to find out who the bad guys are. But the problem is that those stereotypes we've developed stay with us and continue to impact our outlook on life long after we are consciously aware of them. That's the truly insidious thing, the fact that we believe our intuition for goodness and badness to be a real description of the world and not a product of our developed stereotypes. There's a tremendous spiritual challenge here, the challenge to open ourselves up to the grayness of the real world. In Drive, the characters fail to fit neatly into good and evil boxes because they act as a product of their environments. Though they have key moments when they choose a more evil or a more good path, that alone does not define their entire persona. This is particularly true since, in almost every case, if I ask myself honestly how I would act given those same circumstances, those exact same circumstances including upbringing and situation and finances and socioeconomic status and blah blah blah, I'm not confident I would behave any differently. And as much as that may be true in Drive or other noir films, it's even more true in the real world. Think of how often you cast others' bad actions as intentional malice, but your own bad actions as forced errors, either well-intentioned mistakes or made under unusual extenuating circumstances. We're sort of programmed to do this. As soon as we develop reasoning and empathy, we start employing them to let us and the people we care most about off the hook and to condemn pretty much everyone else. We think of ourselves the way Driver thinks of himself at the beginning of the film. Calm, cool, collected. The good guys doing the good things in the world. And we don't consider what evil we would be capable of given the right circumstances. Now just to be clear, none of this is an argument against the pursuit of justice, but perhaps it's a call to understand the difference between healing justice and vindictive justice. If our perspective of the world is limited to one in which we and our associates are the sole force of good, we will be locked into a headspace that can erupt into vindictiveness and violence given the right circumstances. But if we open ourselves up to a life of true empathy, of true understanding, when the call of justice comes, we can simultaneously hold justice in one hand and grace in the other. And that means we can sooner get to the place where wounds of evil are actually healed. All of that starts with that simple question. Do you see yourself as the hero? Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I think it, it's interesting because... Uh, my kind of thoughts divert. There's a real world application of it in which I have X kind of thought. And then there's within the context of the movie where I have Y kind of thought, you know, and I think in terms of contained in the movie, you know, I don't know if we have a, a, a different reading or if it's just differently worded, but I always kind of view this film as, as more maybe depraved and pessimistic and cynical maybe than sure. than you do. Possibly, yeah. Where it, I think what it's trying to drive the audience to, see what I did there? What it's trying to drive the audience to is the conclusion that that both of these characters are ultimately villainous. But I also agree with you that that's a little grayer than that. 
but essentially that sure that these characters are playing roles they're trying to be things that they aren't and in some ways the circumstances of the film are just pushing them to kind of cut the crap and to reveal what they've been at some level like all along which is kind of like the power of the diner scene for me where you know you see the rage in him before it comes out in violence where you're like oh just like any pushback on this guy's control of his rules produces this switch in him that can become just danger right um yeah and ultimately it's just as those circumstances heighten he exaggerates more and more how that comes out but the switch is still the same and then like in the reverse i feel that same way with bernie where it's like i'm trying to play the role of civilized person but ultimately as the circumstances change the reality is i've never been civilized i've always been like a wolf right yeah um and it's so i guess like my reading is that in their own ways they're trying to live out these fantasies that just get shattered and that's kind of what the movie is driving us to see by the end um i think that's a fair reading i I definitely do see it as them um i guess i I definitely just interpreted it that he i I guess i just took everyone at at face value in terms of being sincere so like at the end I, i think the key thing is do you think bernie genuinely doesn't want to be doing what he's doing. And I think, yes, I think that, but I I think you could read either one in the movie. Um, I think it's more interesting if it's read that he does regret it. Yeah. Because again, it it gets to what what we're talking about. Like, you know, ultimately circumstances are forcing both characters to do things they don't want to do. All of which I think is, you're right, bringing them into, you know, there's sort of two sides of the same coin from a certain perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Which I think is fascinating. But, but and, yeah. and, I, and that's what's interesting is I think that's unavoidable that that is an intention of the film is to see these characters as reflecting each other in some way. I guess the question is like, how depraved do you think the director's worldview is? Which I guess we can't know of. Is that sure. to bring us into a place of grayness in which both these characters, like you said, long to not have to do what they do? Or is it to draw us into a place of actually kind of a black and whiteness, which is they're both villains the whole time? And push yeah. come to shove, their characters revealed. And obviously, we can't answer that. What I will say, kind of smoothly transitioning to the outside the movie, is that your reading of it falls far more in line with what I see in the real world. So if if my reading of this movie is accurate, I don't agree with Refn on his worldview. Sure. Um, I find that to be a very pessimistic, nihilistic, cynical, like I said, um, outlook on why people do what they do. And I actually fall way more in line with what you were saying. You know, two really big impactful things on me has been one, learning about the attribution bias, which is what you described, where we have this innate Uh human desire to minimize, you know, our character's role in choices, negative choices that we made, and then to maximize, like, um, our character's role in positive things or outcomes that we are a part of. And then to do the exact opposite with other people. So basically yeah. when I fail, it's because of circumstance. When someone else fails, it's because of their character. When I succeed, it's because of my character. When I fail, it's because of circumstance, right? And yeah. to just identify that as a psychological construct in almost every human being as like a natural thing that you have to learn to identify in yourself was transformative for me. Because you're like, holy crap, I do that all the time. And of course I end up in a black and white world in which I do things that are completely unfair and unjust and have very little grace. Right. But also yeah. don't take ownership for my own failures. So that's one thing I just want to shout that out for you. I think you're spot on there. 
And then the other thing is just that meditation. Like you said, if I had the same circumstances, life experiences, brain chemistry, yada, 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 to meditate on the fact that I would never do anything differently than anyone else in the world, that there is no moral superiority built into my DNA, right? And yeah. I think holding both of those things, it, it leads you to that profound realization that you were kind of touching on where you can start holding paradox of j- grace and justice and yada, yada, yada. So I don't know if you have anything you want to say to that, but I, I just really love those two points. And whether Drive speaks to that worldview or not, that is the world that I choose to inhabit. Sure. I think what I'm intrigued by, in, in and I, I appreciate all those words. I'm, I'm with you on all of that, obviously. I think that, you know, it's possible it's being read into the movie, but, but I, I do think the movie is very concerned with the question of good guy, bad guy. Sure. And and because, you know, because it gets brought up a couple times. So I, I do think you're right that it is probably or it could be giving the more cynical take of just like they're both bad. But even if it is, it's saying that they're both on the same side. It, it's saying that, you know, the perspective you might have at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Because I'm. I don't know. Do you do you agree? I think the first half, everyone is sold on driver as oh, good yeah. guy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right, like like we all get we all get bought 100%. into that, or we all buy into that same story. So I think that's what's so important about the stru- way it's structured that we start in this place of okay, good guy who does good things, and by the end you're like, but is he though? Well, and it, can I? Can what I say, really got us here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to throw us into a whole rabbit hole. <laughs> But what I love about what you said is it's like I, mean, I run into this in, in the Christian world all the time where someone's like, I brought groceries to my poor neighbor, which makes me a good person. But then by my mm. voting or by my the way I participate in institutions that are, quite frankly, evil, those people actually do like more damage than anybody could imagine. Right. Certainly right. more damage yeah. than the good they did in an individual act of kindness. Right. And it's like yeah. this weird dichotomy where it's like, yeah, you may help the old lady to the car with her groceries. You may help this this single mom and her kid. But like if you're also like in the grander scheme of your life, a murderer and a criminal and all these ways that cause untold suffering to all these people, there's this weird dichotomy that we can form that demands that we have a better reflection on what it means to be a villain and hero. When I think of drive, there are two words that immediately come to mind. Those are style and violence. And for most people who have seen the movie, both of those words make complete sense. As we've said, drive is as stylish of a movie as they come. It is inseparable from its unique, immediately placeable vibe that it fosters pretty much in every scene. The sweeping beauty of the driving shots, the glowing lights of the cinematography, the silent glances, sly smiles, and perfectly low-key pieces of dialogue between characters. The synthetic modern soundtrack, the perfectly fired threats and seemingly effortless acts of intimidation, and of course the sweet Scorpion jacket that John would adore today, probably. All to say style is everywhere in Drive. It drips from every single shot, style, style, style. And then of course, Drive is violent. There's no two ways about it. I remember seeing drive-in theaters and leaving with that feeling that I had just witnessed one of the most violent movies I had ever seen. Its depictions of violent acts just stuck with me that deeply. 
to the point that it felt synonymous with the word violence ever since. And while Drive is no doubt violent, what surprises me every time I rewatch it is how few scenes of actual violence there are in the movie's runtime. As a reference point, I want to compare some other films that mentally I consider to be just as violent in my mind. John Wick has 77 on-screen deaths. John Wick 2, 128. This one's absurd, but I'm just going to throw it out there for funsies. Saving Private Ryan, 255. Now let's consider some movies that mentally I definitively consider less violent. And this is where it gets interesting. Thor, for example, had 88 on-screen deaths, if you include the Frost Giants and aren't a racist. And even a movie like This Is The End, a comedy, has 13 on-screen deaths. You're probably wondering why I brought all that up. Well, hold those numbers in your mind. Now check this out. In reality, Drive's first death, that of Standard Gabriel, does not take place until over halfway through the movie's runtime. And in total, only nine people die on screen over the course of the film. That is four less than This is the End. That is 79 less than Thor. I mean, it's crazy. In its concrete, grim detail, Drive is not nearly as violent as many other movies in terms of body count or total number of scenes depicting actual violent acts. And yet in my mental schema and sorting of this movie, I always find myself ranking it far more closely to movies like John Wick than I would Thor. And I believe that's because of how Drive depicts its violence. Drive's violence is as visceral and more so realistic as it gets. You see, these other films flood viewers with scene after scene of carnage racked up and jacked up to the a millionth degree. They create set pieces of mass death that literally drown any perception of what you're actually perceiving is violent. It all sanitizes and even stylizes its depictions of violence to varied degrees, to the point that you almost don't even perceive that that's what you're viewing. I mean, take Thor or the Avengers, for example. These movies depict war and the destruction of entire urban areas. But at the same time, these films don't feel violent because quite frankly, their violence is hidden. It's buried, it's deflected from through a variety of tactics, scale, one-lighters, alien villains, lookaways, fast pacing, not to mention both shy away from showing blood or accurate depictions of what happens to a human body when it's shot, broken, smashed, or destroyed. All of these tactics keep the audience from really understanding, really soaking in that what they are viewing in reality is death, violence, destruction, and mayhem, which in the case of a superhero movie is obviously a good thing. Or even a movie like John Wick, Take that, for example. In it, you know it's violent, but the action is so quick and the acts of violence so stylized, choreographed, and quite frankly, beautiful to watch that you can still come away from watching it feeling like you've seen something cool, not something upsetting or unsettling or troubling, even though you just watched 128 people die. And that's what makes Jive so fascinating. It's what makes it so jarring, so intense. In a movie in which everything else from script 
to direction to cinematography to performance is so dang stylized it's a violence is absolutely not whether it's a slit wrist a shotgun blast to the head or watching a man's face get stomped into the ground when drive chooses to depict violence it holds absolutely nothing back and it refuses to let you as the audience look away it depicts violence i believe as it is physical graphic noisy brutal messy disgusting and it holds the camera on such acts until they are completely over with never flashing away or letting us off the hook from confronting what violence actually looks like what it actually is at its core and it's astounding how effective that is cinematically it makes the movie so memorable this decision to start so slow and stylize so much only to then slap its audience with the sudden shocking and unflinching bursts of brutality these scenes that shake us awake so thoroughly these images that can't help but get stuck in our mind and it's also effective on a human level its refusal to stylize hide choreograph or add any level of sexiness sophistication beauty or glamour to its acts of human violence force us to in a way confront what violence actually is what these acts that are so easy to sanitize cheer for and even applaud actually look like in concrete practice real lives real snapping bones real fountains of blood real crumpling of bodies real brutality horror and depravity nothing less than the disgusting and visceral breaking of a life i think that's why drive feels more violent than it is by the numbers and while i couldn't handle that in every movie or even all that often i am grateful that this movie was willing to go there if only to balance out the more comfortable more sanitized and yes more thrilling depictions of violence that saturate hollywood to give us a more sobering hard but at the same time honest reminder of what this part of our humanity actually is and for that i am grateful that drive exists I just have a couple notes about some of the numbers uh, that you, that you put out here. Is that is that okay? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just want to very briefly ask um, Frost Giants make me racist? Question <laughs> mark. Do you want to expand on that on the point well, at all? Of, I think uh, there's there's like this thing that we do <laughs> as human beings, which is we do, uh-huh. we. We often create subgroups of what uh, a consciousness is and then allow ourselves to justify the extinction of those consciousnesses because we find them now, to be less, less human than us. And I think that's what we do with the Frost Giants. That's all I'm saying. If I recall correctly, Frost Giants are kind of like bad guys. Like it's, you know, oh, it's, it's, oh, it's not the villains, the... John. Oh, okay. what a black and yeah, white world As I, as I started saying it. Um, that my last your, your genocide. <laughs> okay and then my last uh i just want to throw out there you left out a big one mike in fact i'm I'm astonished you left it out can you guess how many people on screen are killed in john rambo 
2007. Is it one? Oh, no, no. I can't remember. It's it's like, it's single digits, right? No, 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 no. Not, not Rambo First Blood. John Rambo, the oh, 2007. Oh, no, that movie's insane. It's like 450. Yeah. It's 254, which yeah. is still yeah. pretty insane. That's the most graphic movie deaths. I've ever seen in my life. That's sort of the... That might be the combination of this movie and those movies. Yeah. That 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 movie goes so far towards depiction. It's both. it's it's arguably not thrilling anymore. Yeah, why not it's both? Argu- yeah. <laughs> why not both? Uh I love your I love the art, or excuse me the essay. I I think that it is it, it's it's interesting that we did the Matrix last week too, right? Yeah. Because mm. it's Almost the the antithesis of this because that is a movie that makes violence look very cool and very fun and very sanitized, right? Like you think yeah. about how ultimately, like the entire uh, famous hallway shootout, there's essentially I don't think there's any blood, really. Like yeah, like there might be there's so. one or two shots in the movie, like someone maybe has some blood in their mouth or whatever, but certainly it's not very not remotely approaching. Um, something like this and you're right there's almost this there, there's almost this role that some a movie like this can can play in our heads of, of you're right of, of helping us internalize i guess what what the the actual effect of excuse me the actual effect of this kind of thing um i don't know i'm, I'm intrigued by that idea a lot I, mm-hmm. I don't know if i had that much beyond just that comparing it to the matrix but but I agree with you, I guess, is why I would say, yeah, I think it's a, it's really interesting. Those different, those, the, that different kind of way that we judge those things and, um, and the effect that they have on us. I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah. I think it, it's the value of, I always think of saving private Ryan actually as a cultural artifact as sure. a, as a direct response to like the John Wayne movies, the John Wayne war movies and, and and that is simply to say that very much like you were talking about in your essay, which is that as a national consciousness, we can develop stereotypes that actually become how we think about real things in our world. I mean, these movies are important because like how we perceive violence is a stereotype that we form, which will impact how we vote against violence, how we yeah. think about uh, whether when violence should be necessary or used or if at all. Right. And and if it's something that we don't think of as disgusting and jarring and, like I said, visceral and and brutal and beastly even and against our better um, nature as human beings, then we will be more likely to find reasons for allowing it, right? So yeah. I can't handle a movie that depicts violence like Drive does every day of my week. This is rough. It's a rough hang when that <laughs> yeah. elevator scene is rough, right? But I'm glad it exists because there has to be some movies that push against the narrative of like, look how cool and how effortless and how um, I, I keep saying you said sanitized. I keep saying sanit- how sanitized this all is. And this movie yeah. is like, no, nah, it's anything but it is gross. <laughs> right. Uh, another contender, American History X is mm. right in there, too. Yeah. 100%. Very, very whatever the opposite word of sanitized is. Um Towards violence, and, and I think it's funny that comparing that movie to this movie because that movie has a clear, like you know, um, agenda, which isn't obviously a negative thing. It has a message, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. It is very clearly trying to tell you something that actually does involve violence, and, and to to an extent, 
this movie could be said to be much murkier in terms of motivation and, and messaging and things like that. But I think you're right that it is, there, there's a purpose, there is an intentionality to such a stark and such a um, impactful depiction of violence. Yeah, I think you're right that um, certainly, in fact, in, in, in whatever that intention is, I think you're right. The result is is we, t- we, we have this visceral response to it. Um, yeah. everybody thank you so much for listening um we do have a final question mike and i have each prepared for each other but before we get to that we did want to let you know that on the next episode we are going to be discussing snatch the 2000 british american crime comedy film written and directed by guy Ritchie. um a, a classic if you haven't seen that movie if you haven't seen that movie actually i would say watch lock stock and two socks Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, and then watch that movie. Yeah. I think it's maybe better. We'll talk about that, but certainly they're like you almost need to see both of them. I would say, right, yeah, Mike? Definitely, definitely. Like they're they're so interconnected in a weird way, even though they're not, but they are. Um, anyways, like, amazing movie. We're talking about like that dads, next episode. John. You like dance? Okay. <laughs> this is Mike is going to do the entire episode in a probably <laughs> offensive <laughs> gypsy <laughs> gypsy accent. It's going to be amazing. Um. Final question, Mike, I will buy you hypothetically. Mm. I won't really. Okay. But let's say hypothetically that I'll buy you that scorpion jacket Ooh. on condition that you wear it every single day for exactly one year. Mm. I'm talking, I'm talking funerals. Mm-hmm. I'm talking the beach. I'm mm-hmm. talking Audie's first. Okay. Kindergarten graduation. I don't know what age she is. Um, (laughs) I'm saying every single life thing. Yeah. Someone's like, Mike, why are you still wearing that jacket? Sure. Do you accept? No, absolutely not. Not even for the bit. You didn't even give me like a little bit of like, yeah, sure. Then we do a little jokes and then you laugh and say, no, not really. John, you wouldn't even do it. The reason that your, your response to my straight thought earlier caught me off guard is that I think that jacket is stupid. As hell. I, I'm, I am I am shocked and disappointed. Um, and this is coming. What from is a it? Guy my disappointment who... is immeasurable, and my day is ruined. That this is, is st- that is where we are. This is coming from a guy who went through high school with a jacket with metal studs and and punk rock patches all over it. That's what uh, I find more surprising. Yeah. You have been, I have been much more conservative in terms yeah. of my style. Over mm. the course of our lives. Sure. And yet here you are hating on objectively an amazing jacket. <laughs> I will say my first question was going to be this jacket or the jacket from 2049. And then I realized that was a stupid question because the jacket in 2049 is like amazing. Yeah. I, would I, think, that. I think everyone would want that. Yeah. That, so, so that one. <laughs> that That's tough. I, I, I sort of realized as I was writing it that, yeah, maybe this is not. Yeah, you should have thought the of some other look. Some other like looks from movie history, and maybe pick one or the other. I think is the direction you should have gone with because that's that's a that's well, a hard you, you, hard no for me, John. <laughs> you live and learn. 
I'm 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 disappointed, but I understand. Not everyone sure. can be great. That sure. that's the takeaway here. That yeah. that's that's it. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, well, when I'm walking Audie to day one of the old kindergarten, I will think of your the question old kindergarten. and smile. Um, all right, John. Here we go. This has a lot of buildup, so you just have to bear with me. So you're a bachelor, right, John? Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I would define you as someone who is, who is out there looking for love of a real human being and a real hero and this often cold dark abyss of a world so you're in new york you're on a first date it's going really well she's got a sweet scorpion jacket on you know she walks you to your apartment she is uh she is super vibing with you like non-verbally like to the match even though she doesn't talk much which is kind of weird but you're cool with it and then like as you're going up the elevator to your apartment she's confronted by a nameless italian mobster whom she stomps literally head first into the ground until there's nothing mm-hmm. left of the mm-hmm. skull, but a, mm-hmm. like a fleshy mass of brain matter and bone. What do you need from her for you to say yes to going on a second date? What do I need? What, what exactly was the phrasing again? What do I what, need? What does she need to do? <laughs> to convince you to give her a second date like for you to genuinely say yes not like out of fear to say yes mm-hmm. to, that, to that second date what what has to happen oh oh well that's easy. well you said fear because i was gonna say the obvious one is she could intimidate me i mean at yeah, that point yeah, i'm yeah, already yeah. i'm pretty far along the line so so if she said hey like I, i'm even gonna say i know this is short-circuiting the question you're trying to ask me but I, i'm gonna say if that person contacts me at any point after that and says like, Hey, do you want to hang out? I'm immediately saying yes, because I'm in my brain. I'm like, the calculation is do not, do not get on the wrong side of this human being. So would you, would you ghost them or would you be too afraid to Um, do that? That, that ultimately like, yeah, the answer is yes. I would, (laughs) but, but I would, it wouldn't be like ghosting them, like not responding to their calls and texts. I, I, I would like leave. I would, I would move. I would erase my identity. <laughs> yeah, me too. Is what I'm that. trying to say. I'd I'd sort of do the reverse, like where where in the movie Driver left, you know, and then Irene is just there, doesn't get to see him again. I would be I I would be Driver, but I, you know, it'd be reversed. I would be just leave. I'd just be bouncing, like you know, she come to my door, and I'd just be no, not not there. Yeah, you're like so. Norway is real nice this time of the year. <laughs> so yeah, gotta, yeah, gotta really look into that. Uh, hearing great things about Canada, you know, it's cold, but that's fine. I can make it work. Yeah. I'm bouncing nowhere near here. Ah, so like, is that it, Mike? Did we do it? So, so oh, okay. you like, we, just like her asking for a second date, you'd say yes. Is that the answer? Just like uh, yeah. any amount of interest. <laughs> that. That's the, you know what, Mike turned 30 this year. Or turn thirty last year, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's just where we are. You guys judge me for it? It's, <laughs> it's just a, like it's a hard world out there. <laughs> it's a hard world. You Don't know what? You take me. what you can get. Don't judge me, Michael. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. I oh think wait, real quick, real quick, real quick. Yeah. Would, uh, would you wear the jacket all day, every day, for a year? Oh yeah. Okay. I've con- I, sure. after watching the movie, I consider buying it. So you know, <laughs> I'm doing. I'm wearing it right now. Uh, straight up, kind of, kind of pricey. 
low yeah. pricier than I think it should be. I think I think you have evidence that there's enough people that don't like the look of it that it shouldn't be. It you shouldn't cost that much. It's, you would yeah. think. I would think. And yet here well, we are. Well, uh, Mike, thank you as always for the riveting conversation. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, tune in next episode for Snatch. But uh, for now, my name is Jonathan Devine. Mike Overstreet, real human being, real hero. How do you like That's Tim it. Apples? That's it. The look at that. Can't You can't top that. Thank you guys again. Sorry, Ricky is sharing positive things, but it it started. The text started with "I I don't mean to bother you." Popped up on my computer screen, and I was like, "Something happened with the kids," because she's alone with the kids. Oh no! And I think she's oh, just gonna no. share like pictures of. Oh, we got MetroNet, and then Audi is eating something. Oh, a banana! Oh god! Okay, Audi doesn't usually like bananas. Anyway, John. We're gonna. I'm just gonna start with so John was driving about. <laughs> All of this, by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the marker right now. All of this is uh, gonna go at the end of the podcast. Oh, I can't wait! I can't wait after this. Oh after my god! The, after this. Okay, let's go. <laughs>